Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Wendy Padbury, and you're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Good morning! We're too much scrolling. I'm Steve. I'm Chip. And we have all the information you need to survive another week. New shows published every Tuesday. Find us on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. We'll see you in the future. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club the podcast in which we undertake the mind-robbing task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. It's technically our Christmas episode, so yeah, join us for the cheer. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a completely non-criminal three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. We also have our intermediate fan, one who has seen several episodes but has read little of the book series up to this point, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, good evening. And today we have a special guest panelist from the Too Much Scrolling podcast, the wild and wonderful Steve Fodor. Hello, Steve. Good evening, time travelers. How are you? This fine solstice is coming up. Yes, it is. And I thought you were going to do the high-pitched note that you do the good morning, but... I I could do that, but this is certainly an evening sort of podcast. This is a very different show from (laughs) Too Much Scrolling, no doubt about that. That's true. That's true. We we leave the high pitches for uh, when we really find something that's just terrifying and awful. And unfortunately, on this show, that happens a lot. (laughs) But that's fine. Okay. Before we get to talking about the book, we'd like to tell you about our Patreon page available at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know Target books are now just below pennies on the list of most useless things. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air, we do have two new patrons who will be officially starting with us at the beginning of the new year, and we're excited to invite them aboard, and we'll be doing that officially in January. But as usual, we'd like to thank the people who keep the lights on. Those would be Bart Lamy, Toby Bengelsdorf, and Rick Taylor. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. Yep. And now, let's roll a joint or take a tab of acid in order to most fully enjoy <laughs> Peter Ling's absolutely crazy book of his own script for The Mine Robber. Actually, a cup of Christmas cheer is fine. We're having Having, we're having Coke and rum, or rum and Coke. Mm-hmm. What are you having? I have a Neapolitan milk stout, which is a very extensive beer with a lot of sugar in it. Really? Welcome to America. Yes, I sir. That sounds like ice cream. Mm-hmm. It is ice cream based. It is a milk stout. It's 6% alcohol by volume Ooh. and extremely sweet. It is, it's a dessert beer. Oh my god, that sounds like the thing that they'd be drinking in the Mind Robber. Yeah. This is sort of a Mind Robber kind of a drink, yes sir. (laughs) Hopefully not too fast. Okay, so without further ado, here are some fast facts. 
Doctor Who the Mind Robber, adapted by Peter Ling from the scripts that aired from 91468 to 101268, published by Target Books in April 1987. As of this recording in December of 2018, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 144 pages. Alright, some background. A couple things to note about this story, and one of these is that just like the Dominators before it, it is a five-parter, or technically a four-parter with a prologue. As we noted last time, the reason for this is that the Dominators lost an episode when the producer felt the scripts weren't really doing all that much. And so we had a script editor, Derek Sherwin, to wrap it up in five episodes. That meant they had this extra episode that was already sparsely budgeted for, and the script for the next story had already been written. Thus, Sherwin, uncredited, wrote a new first episode for The Mind Robber to introduce the story which is why it is the only Doctor Who episode in the history of the series not to have a writer's credit on it. Hmm. Yeah, but it just says The Mind Robber, episode one, and it gets going. This didn't go over too well with Peter Ling, the writer of the main story, who had already constructed a script without knowing who the new female companion was going to be. He ended up calling her Zoe. The production team liked it well enough to keep it. As we can see from the novelization, though, he seems not to have had that much trouble keeping that prologue and even expanding on it a bit for the story. Uh, Ling was born in 1926 and by 1968 had already had an impressive CV as a TV writer, having co-created with Hazel Adair the series Crossroads, which ran from 1964 until 1988. From what I understand, it's a soap. That's all I know about it. And it was very popular, so that's all I know. He also wrote three episodes for The Avengers, which I was aware of, several radio adaptations of Sherlock Holmes stories, and even some songs, believe it or not. Despite submitting another story idea to Doctor Who in the mid-'80s called Hex, He never wrote for the show again. Hex itself was made into an audio drama by Big Finish Productions. I have not listened to it yet. This book is kind of making me want to go and do that. (laughs) He died in 2006 owing to complications from Alzheimer's disease. The book itself is one I've been looking forward to. Ever since Target editor Nigel Robinson told me that working with Ling was one of the best experiences he ever had on the job as the editor of The Range. Despite the fact that Ling wrote a draft describing Zoe as a blonde and insisting that was her hair color. <laughs> Apparently, Ling even took him to dinner to argue about it and to try to prove it. But he did say it was one of the easiest books to edit, and having read it now, we can kind of see why. Mm-hmm. The other reason I've been wanting to read this again is because my only experience of this book was as an adult, and I heard the audiobook. And the audiobook is recorded by no less than Sir Derek Jacobi. Hmm. Amazingly enough, <laughs> he of I, Claudius, who ended up playing the master, but not the master in the book. Yeah, yes. and it's a brilliant absolutely brilliant audio recording so we need somebody to read the back cover and since we have a guest tonight steve i think we're gonna have you do a dramatic reading of the back cover for us all right dramatic reading for christmas i feel like charles dickens (laughs) the back cover of the mind robber starts marley was dead no sorry To escape a catastrophic volcanic eruption, the Doctor takes the TARDIS out of space and time and into a void he can only describe as nowhere. 
But the crisis is far from over, and when the time machine circuits overload, the TARDIS explodes. The Doctor, Jamie, and Zoe come to in a dark, unearthly forest. There, they encounter a host of characters who seem somehow familiar. A beautiful princess with long, flaxen hair, a sea traveler dressed in 18th century clothing, and a white rabbit frantically consulting his pocket watch. What is happening to the three time travelers? What strange power guides their actions in the land of fiction? Who can really tell? Yes, as uh, Professor Farnsworth would say on Futurama, who knows? Oh, wait, I do. (laughs) Bad news, everyone. Bad news, everyone. Good news, everyone. You perfected dog mascara? Far from it. If you ask me, they look like a bunch of hookers. Yes, we're in the land of fiction, and we've gotten beautiful princess with long flax and hair, sea traveler with 18th century clothes and a white rabbit. We do not get the white rabbit. I wish we did get the white they rabbit. They mention it. They do. One sentence. That's it. We well, don't even they, get an interaction. Well, that's more than you get on screen. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. All right, so um, we're going to go with our first impressions. We've, it's been a while since we've done those. So, Steve, what were your first impressions when you first... Uh, we're given this assignment. Well, I remember this episode as the episode where Jamie McCrimmon uh, suddenly disappears and becomes a whole nother person. He regenerates kind of in this. (laughs) And I I remember from my Doctor Who lore that that was just the result of Fraser Hines actually having chicken pox and being removed from the set after the filming of the first episode. And and I, I wondered how that was going to work into the novelization. And uh, it, it actually works pretty well in this storytelling world where anything can happen. Fiction all around you and anything can happen, including costume changes and uh, a face change happens mm-hmm. here. I enjoyed this adventure with the doctor and Jamie and yes, that girl who happens to be called Zoe with the blonde hair. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. And you're absolutely right about that story about him getting chicken pox. Um, one bit of the lore that it turns out has been wrong all these years is that uh, Hamish Wilson, who took his place was his cousin and actually, no, they're not related. Hmm. Not at all. It would have been kind of neat if they had been, but no, no relation. Whatsoever between these gentlemen. So yes, for a, a good episode of the televised version, Jamie's played by a different pr- person altogether, mm-hmm. which is yeah, among many interesting things. It, here. Yeah. It's one of those accidents that really works well in that storytelling world that we're in. Why not? Why not have a different actor portraying the part? And why not have Zoe not really believe that it's him? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And Dalton, what about your first impressions? Um, this one was reminding me a lot of the Celestial Toymaker, but mm. uh, I enjoyed this story a lot more. <laughs> um, I don't exactly remember how I felt about that one, but I remember us as a, as a panel kind of being underwhelmed and a little disappointed. But this, mm-hmm. this story is a lot of fun. There was a lot of playfulness in it that I, in past episodes, have really liked about uh, the second doctor, and I'm glad to see that there. Um, but also, yeah, Zoe immediately kind of like being like, the doctor's, he's worried. He's like, yeah. he's thrown off. That was interesting to me. But yeah, this one, this one was a lot of fun. I was uh, interested to see 
what stories they were going to involve. Uh, kind of surprised about the uh, inclusion of Gulliver. Yes. It took me back to 12th grade AP English mm-hmm. and suffering through that book. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, this this was a lot of fun, and I was I was really glad to to be reading this around Christmas, especially with the the callback to Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol oh, yeah. included in there. So mm-hmm. there's the tie-in. Yes, absolutely. Now I will disagree with you about Swift because them's fighting words. I have. <laughs> Taught that book several times very successfully. I need to go back and read it as an adult. You do. You yes. do. Because it, it is delightful. <laughs> it is absolutely delightful. And especially when you get to the whole bit about them coming up with some sort of secret language for political espionage and only being able to come up with sentences such as, our brother John has got the piles again. that's just brilliant yeah it's a great bit of satire the unfortunate thing about it is you tend to get jack black versions that only do the little putions at the very beginning yeah Yeah, Yeah. it's always the little people and they always leave out the best bit where uh there's a fire in the palace and uh gulliver puts it out by pissing on it yes yes (laughs) um yeah, I need to go back to re- and read it as an adult. In, in 12th grade English, it was very, it was forced upon us. And I remember yes. trudging through it and being like, ugh. Well, but. that might explain, this This might be why people take the doctor at face value when they uh, when he says that uh, Gulliver only speaks the words that Jonathan Swift gave him to yeah. say. No, these are not direct quotes from Gulliver's travels. No. <laughs> no, they absolutely <laughs> are not because I looked up every single one of them. <laughs> and they are not in there. Well, actually, they are kind of paraphrases, and they're very yeah. good paraphrases. But no, there are a few that are not in there. So, yeah. A better writer might have been able to pull that off where he actually pulled actual quotations. But the paraphrasing and, and the sense of the character still holds true. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he is probably one of my favorite characters in the story on the televised version because it's Bernard Horsfall, who we'll see again as a Time Lord very soon. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry. I gave something away to Dalton. It's okay. He doesn't know about that yet. I don't mind spoilers. (laughs) I think a 55-year-old program, well, this is actually 50 years old. I think you can spoil Tony. I think it's okay. Yeah, Yeah, but you'd be amazed how many people really get ticked off about that. And that's dumb. Yeah, well... What do I know? It's usually, you know, the under 20s, you know, young whippersnappers that are just coming to the program because they see that hottie Peter Capaldi and they want to learn more. I've always said if uh, months of writing, directing, art direction, uh, cinematography, music, all that can be ruined by someone sending a sentence, then you, you can't enjoy anything. Well, that is true. So, so where do we start with this? In the beginning. Okay. Yes, I, I think I think that's probably the right place. Is the <laughs> a very good place to start. So uh, we're going to yes. start with that novelized version of words and events that aren't even Peter Lim's. They belong to Derek Sherwin. That whole TARDIS base first episode. What did you think? I was thrown off because having just read the Dominators. Vesuvius? What? <laughs> you almost made me spit my drink. Sorry. <laughs> yes. It just, uh, what? Yeah. How no. did we end up here? We didn't. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is very tacked on. There's no doubt about that. But it's kind of a two-parter, sort of. You know, it, it's the mm-hmm. it's that cliffhanger that was manufactured by the process as opposed to on purpose. 
Yes, yeah. yes. And I think a lot of it is manufactured because Peter Lim simply forgot what happened <laughs> in that episode and didn't realize there was a lead into his story, even though we just came off Ian Martyr deliberately leaving that <laughs> yes. that cliffhanger there for the next writer to pick up, and it doesn't get picked up at all. We're instead no. in Vesuvius. But it works. It works well. If I if I forget the fact that we we were on another planet completely, yes, then the the Doctor is going to be at Vesuvius in a later incarnation. Yes. So yeah, but it the the book as a whole though it it does well with creating the scene and giving us kind of starting us there. Mm -hmm. So it works. It just, for me, having, having just come off the other book, I'm like, wait wait a minute. I understand that. It's a push start into the story. And I think that that's all right. I think that a lot of stories suffer from uh, a a real need to have that cold open where we have something happening already. Mm -hmm. I, I enjoy how we've done that so well in the new seasons where we, have these ideas of these adventures that they're going on in between this works the same way in a lot of ways yeah yeah oh yeah absolutely and i think that watching this in the 60s you really would not have gotten a sense that this is in essence a one-parter that's all by itself in the tardis (laughs) and then the the story proper isn't going to start until say you know chapter three of this book in fact that's where we get the first limb material Mm-hmm. But it works really well, and he does a very good job with it, especially the newer stuff. I'm trying to think what some of that stuff is. Um, I always love it when they make references to Mercury and Fluid Links. Fluid Links is always one of those funny things about Doctor Who lore. Nobody knows what Fluid Links are. It's never actually explained, and uh, David Tennant very famously just threw out the term fluid links in an episode and they went, what's that? And he said, I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's what Peter Ling seems to be doing here too, Mm -hmm. which is perfectly fine, especially because it is building up that menace and because Ling knows a little bit more about Doctor Who at this point than we do. Um, Yes, even mentioning the master, even though the master... That threw me off as well. Isn't that great? Because, but, yeah, in story order, you don't know who the master is yet, but he knows that the readers are going to know who the yes, master is. by the is. time the book was published, it's it's a thing. So yeah. uh, that threw me off. But I was like, nice reference, though. Thank you for including that. Mm-hmm. But if we're doing it in story order, somebody like you is looking at it and saying, who the hell is a master? Right, even though I know who <laughs> Yeah, but, of course you do. But other people would not know. Allison probably, I'm not sure if Allison would know. We'll have to ask her. Steve, I assume that you knew who the master was. I do. I I have a a deep binding relationship with the master on so many levels at this point. The master has been such an important part of Doctor Who lore. And and to see this mysterious character, I I wasn't sure really whether this was the master when it was named or if this was just a sinister snidely whiplash curling his mustache evil yeah. villain it works right. either way really yeah it yeah. does it does and i think that's why ling kind of nips that in the bud as soon as he does because he's like no 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 no. it's not that guy i don't want you to think about that guy it's not another time lord in fact he doesn't say another time lord he says another of the doctor's race yes which is lovely 
Yes. Mm-hmm. If it had been Ian Martyr, he probably said, yeah, another two-hearted Time Lord. <laughs> like, the t- body temperature of 55 and genitalia for miles. It's like, okay, Ian, calm down. Calm down. Calm down. Take your getting insulin. Little, getting a little excited. Here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, what else did we like about the opening? I, I liked the, the feeling of nothingness. The, the doctor having trouble kind of remembering what exactly has happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even him having to retrace his own steps in his mind to, to what is reality? What am I imagining? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was really well done um, to give us a little sense of confusion for all of them. Right. You know? um, and like I said earlier, since Zoe immediately picked up on the fact that the doctor is afraid and worried that just helped to add to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because there is absolutely nothing. Right. And that that's scary. Yeah. So. Nothing is just as scary as silence. Uh, the, the idea of being out of time, out of place, and out of all of those senses that lead us to knowing where we are, that this is genuinely frightening. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I find that those images projected up on the screen for each of the companions mm-hmm. are much more effective in this version, even though we still don't know where the hell or when Zoe's from. He keeps saying 21st century, and so when she hears electronic music, I think, oh, Zoe, you're into le- electronica. Good for you, girl. Yeah. <laughs> but when every time I see the city with a capital C, I think, oh, she works in London? Yeah. Okay, that that's weird. She yeah. works in the financial district. What? Kind of weird. But yeah. Well, it's just the sense of home, the the belonging and the traveling that we do with the doctor week in and week out. The 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 need to know where home is and to have that desire to get back there is is really well done here where we see, oh, these are the highlands, these are bagpipes. I know this place. And then Zoe has the same reaction to her image. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is strange because she also mentions her mother. We never hear about her mother ever again. We'll never hear about any of Zoe's family at all. She might as well be an orphan. Mm. But yeah, here we here we hear about the mother. And Stephen, remind me, does she mention that in the uh, televised version? Oh, boy, I I do not know the answer to that, Tony. Um, I'm sure I our listeners know. will. We'll hear from somebody. We'll hear from somebody saying, oh, you idiots. Of course she doesn't. You're fools, all of you. But yeah. Perhaps she does. I, th- it seems like a detail that maybe would just be a novelization detail, but certainly the sense of relationships with others goes right in with that theme of home and longing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe she does. I don't know. Familiarity, yeah. Yeah. And the flip side of it, how terrifying this um, land of fiction is to the point that they're in a forest, but Ling tells us it doesn't smell like a forest. Mm. And he can't really he can't really do smells on television, obviously. But on the page, he's able to give us that other that extra sense of otherworldliness that we wouldn't get in the televised version. And of course, the televised version, almost all of this is on the same set, the same stage, because this was before the age where they could take cameras outside and go to an actual forest. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is going to be such a weird forest anyway that they kind of need to be on uh, on a set. Sure. But yeah, that first episode is amazing and it doesn't lose anything on the page. Something that really surprises me quite a bit that it actually is added to. And we get the power chamber. In fact, we get another room, believe it or not, even though it's just kind of a 
weird workroom, but here it sounds a little more interesting and exciting than it actually is. <laughs> Hello everyone, Tony Witt here breaking in for a second because there's actually one thing that we did not discuss about the beginning of the story, and it was noted after we were done recording and one of our readers on Goodreads, uh, Carrie, hello Carrie, brought this up as well, that one of the weirdest things about that intro, besides the Mount Vesuvius thing, is that Jamie is piloting the TARDIS, not once, but twice, which is just absolutely bizarre. Anyway, we thought that was interesting enough to bring it up as a extra note, so there you go. Now back to the program. So once we get into the story proper, what what's striking to us? What do we uh, what do we like about it? What are things that pop out to us? Once they're in the forest, kind of the the way that they all get separated, and the description of the doctor heading in a straight line, uh, Jamie heading in a zigzag, and Zoe walking in circles. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was that was kind of interesting because that just kind of shows how each of them is processing all of this in a different way. Oh, I didn't catch that. Um, the doctor is very much like forward. He's he's just moving. Mm-hmm. Jamie, of course, would be a little more erratic because he is a little more erratic. And I feel like <laughs> Zoe would be the type that would just she she's mathematical. She's thinking, I don't know, maybe if I go this way, I'll find something. Well, that's not work this way. Probably she's doing just, a methodical search pattern. Yes. Mm-hmm. interesting okay that's amazing yeah absolutely what else the, the robots uh yeah were kind of strange and not really menacing but also at the same time just hearing yeah marching steps coming for you they don't fit do they you know they're the one things that don't fit because everything else in this world seems to be of early 20th century technology at the furthest mm-hmm. Because we get the ticker tape machine, and that's been around since the 1880s, I believe. And everything that the master, or whatever his name is, everything seems to be coded to making him comfortable. So there are print books, but there are also recordings. And they did have, you know, rough recordings back in back in those days. He himself is from the 20s, I believe, because uh, they make a reference to the kids when they first show up. Uh, he says they all looked as if they had stepped out of the pages of a juvenile story by E. Nesbitt or Kenneth Graham, which is one of those references that's going to throw American readers like, what? I, yeah, I yeah. did not know who either people were. They're both uh, writers of uh, juvenile children's literature turn of the 20th okay. century. So very well known. They'd be kind of the um, J.K. Rowling's of their day. Gotcha. With about the sales figures and popularity, as a matter of fact. So yeah, I, I did not understand that one nearly as well as as you did. <laughs> well, I had to look it up. Beverly Clear. Oh yeah, Ramona Quimby. There we go. Yeah, so, there you yeah. I had um, I'd heard of E Nesbit before, but I'd forgotten that that's the pen name of Edith Nesbit. Okay. But it was mostly boys' adventure stories, so that sort of thing. So it might be familiar if I look up any of it. Yeah. Okay. Just might. Just in the the broad strokes of it, but mm-hmm. we didn't really have that. In American literature, except well, we kind of oh, we had the Hardy Boys. There's there's plenty of examples of yeah. of literature of the time written specifically for groups of children. There's there's sort there's so many different examples. Right, and I was thinking specifically the Boys' Adventure Tale. And as soon as I said that, you're right. Uh, Hardy Boys popped into my head. Uh, the Boxcar Children mm-hmm. popped into my head. Well, even mm-hmm. L. Frank Baum, the Wizard of Oz oh, series. Yeah. To some degree, yeah, though that was much more fantastical. These tended to be a little more grounded. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, 
even the master saying that he's written something like I, I did the math. How many pages did he say he had done? It was something ridiculous. Um, da -da 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 -da. Why am I jumping? About how many? He he said he had done like six million words. Five thousand words is roughly equivalent to twenty double space type pages, and he did that every week for how many years? Twenty five years? Yeah, yeah. So he's Stephen King. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Though probably not as uh, not the the level of Stephen King at all. Not quite to the James Patterson level. No, no. <laughs> so you have to wonder if somebody else took over his writing duties after it got taken away from her. Right. Because <laughs> I'm not sure he'd want to ever pick up a pen again after uh, what he's been through. But we're jumping ahead, obviously. The, hmm. uh, yes. Initially, the, the nothingness, the void, the white room reminded me of the loading space from The Matrix. Oh, Yeah. Uh, you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of just this nothingness mm -hmm. that since we are in a world of fiction, whatever the master wants to create is is there. Yes. And ultimately at the end, you know, the doctor realizes that and is like, oh, okay, well, if I can do whatever I want here, this is what's happening. True, true. That's very Neo of the doctor to realize that if, if he could do whatever he wants, well, then he can he can master this fictional lifestyle and, and make happened anything that he can imagine yes i wonder if that's the blue pill or the red pill it's dr howe <laughs> there was there was a weird reference in the very first chapter though and i was wondering how you two thought about it because it sounds rather like they've created this pocket of nothingness mm -hmm. by the tardis doing this using this power unit which is why the doctor fears something is going to come to fill it so it sounds almost like through some wibbly wobbly timey wimey thing the land of fiction is plopping into that space having already been fully formed somewhere else but just needing a pocket universe to put itself into including the master including the the controller of this space possibly yeah we, hmm. we don't know how long he's been there. Hmm. Yeah, I, I never really quite understood if they are in a land of, if it is nothing, if it is outside of time and space. Yeah, how how that all worked. Yeah, and it might be, and here's a thought of, I mean, we really have to get into why the power behind the master is doing what it's doing, because it's described as another one of those ethereal, great intelligence style creatures so it's probably an old god trying to push its way into our universe again because it wants to take over Earth. Everyone's trying to take over the fucking Earth. The mother brain from Metroid. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like, oh, Earth looks good. That's a nice retirement property. I think I'll do it. Otherwise, it doesn't make a lot of... It almost seems like that's been stuck in as just a bit of a uh, false tension. Uh, well, they do. They do mention uh, towards the end of the book that I guess humans, being this this race of creators of imagination, of of just endless kind of creativity. Oh, you know what's even more embarrassing about that? Ling goes so far as to say, have the doctor say, "Human beings." No, no, no. I think it's the master who says it. That human beings are the only race yeah. capable of imagination. Oh, wow. It's like, ooh. Then I... why is he trying to get the doctor to take his place? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I'm sure there are a lot of ice warriors out there that are kind of hissing in disapproval. <laughs> They're like, how dare you? <laughs> well, 
Well, we have to remember that this story was written for for a children's audience. The idea of sparking creativity in children, saying, you, you are the only one that we know of that have <laughs> this ability to create. So go out and do it. I think that's a great message. It is. Oh, yeah. But it also kind of screws continuity right up the keister because if you think about it in terms of the whole rest of the series, that's one hell of a uh, statement to make. And it really does, um, we get this sort of feeling of how good we are and how wonderful we are and how just fantastic we are as human beings. Ling's going to go far as say, no, 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 we're the best in the universe. We're the only ones that can do this. It's like, wait a minute. That's very Buddhist. We're number <laughs> one. We're number one. <laughs> but Buddhist in what sense, Steve? Well, the idea that we go through these cycles of rebirth and death, and it's only when we reach humanity, when we're not frogs or rocks or trees, it's only when we're humans that we can reach the state of nirvana. The idea that our creative mind is the only one that we know of that we can reach that state. This is, this is power of thought. That's the name of the, of chapter two, the power of thought invented this space perhaps yes. maybe the tardis and its psychic abilities and the doctor's power of thought invented this space including all of the traps that they eventually traverse mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i could see that i could see that yeah and i'm glad you brought up the chapter titles because aren't those awesome yes 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 yeah i mean you rarely get writers even bothering with chapter titles and usually when terence Dix does he uh gives away what's going to happen in the chapter so you don't even have to read it but the doctor abhors a vacuum yeah. which is mm -hmm. fun power of thought which is um one of these titles is the original title of the story oh there it is the fact of fiction the facts of fiction was Lim's original title for this story Are you sure it's not i am the carcass no it's not <laughs> i am the carcass <laughs> oh god we have to talk about the carcass don't we Jay? that's a well, if we're going to do really bad transitions, well, let's go ahead with that one. Let's talk about the carcass, shall we? Oh, my God. Cue <clears throat> <laughs> yes. the Batman theme. Yes. Uh, when did, does anyone know when Batman premiered in the States? Batman 66? Are you talking about the 66. TV show, The Adam West? Yeah, that show. 66. I think that, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I'm not sure if the Brits would have gotten it uh, immediately or whether there was a couple of years pause as there was with Star Trek. But you can tell that Ling has seen it. Mm. Mm -hmm. You can tell that Ling is doing exactly that with the carcass. He is doing the Batman television series even down to having Biff and Pound and all that yeah. as onomatopoeic <laughs> things in the air. Even drawing from comic books, though, that that's, I mean, that's probably, that is where they drew that for the Batman shows. So oh, yeah. Marvel comics. And certainly they're also referencing the Hulk here because the Hulk and the carcass that, I mean, that's, that's the, the naming reference and the fact that he's got torn pants and uh, mm -hmm. a cape. There, there's something between Batman and the Hulk here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. It basically is an espy. I mean, they they obviously couldn't afford the licensing fees to get somebody like Dan Dare or Superman or anything like that. Besides which, they're doing this for Zoe's favorite 
comic strip from what what is it called? The Hourly Telepress. Yeah, I'm, something like that. I'm sure that's a blog. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere. That's a blog in her time. Probably not on Tumblr because, you know, Tumblr sucks now. Well, <laughs> Tumblr's something now. That's true. That's true. The staff, it's, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Anyway, the carcass. <laughs> so how do we feel about the way Ling uh, presents totally fictional characters on the page? I think that, again, this is a TV show written for children and the idea of fiction kind of crossing over this is sort of a crossover episode yes this character of the carcass is something like the hulk from the 1962 comic books and something like the batman of the 1966 television show we get all of the other characters that children might be familiar enough with or they might want to examine further like the gulliver references i think that's something where we might entice kids to go on a journey and Doctor Who is just that. It is that adventure, that journey that we go on week in and week out, or in the case of the 21st century, year in and year out, because we're not going to see another episode for 2019, <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> the, I think that he does a very good job of showing us enough of these characters to entice us to look into them more, to do that internet research. Of course, in 1968, that would have been going to the library and checking out a book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, reading reading this, um, growing up, one of my favorite films and something that uh, all my brothers and I watched endlessly, um, there was a movie that came out in the early 90s called The Page Master oh, yeah. that had Macaulay Culkin. And so it was live action that goes into uh, animation. And it is all about this kid that loves reading. He goes to a library, falls and hits his head, and he is transported to this magnificent realm of fiction. Which is what this is. He goes into Moby Dick. He goes into uh, Treasure Island. He ends up going into Frankenstein and all of these other, uh, you know, stories. And yeah, that's what I was getting from this as well. It's like, it's a way to inspire kids and get them really interested in literature mm -hmm. of all types. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was really effective. And, and, and yeah, like we've pointed out before, these books are meant for young adults, for, for teenage and pre-adolescent kids. So it really, I feel like this would be something that would drive kids to want to what explore a little more. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you the counter question so that you could answer it as well. Oh, well, I was thinking that um, really this book kind of fits the educational mm -hmm. remit of mm -hmm. Doctor Who a lot more than any other Trouton story does. Because... Trouton stories are not meant to be teaching you anything. They're instead meant to be boring you to tears as yet another base is under siege and you're wondering what monster it is this week. <laughs> but in this case... It teaches just, resiliency, though, I right? guess it does. It's like if you can resist the sixth base under siege, you can deal with anything. Yes. But in this case, yeah, um, the fact that there are so many literary references in the book, including ones that are not in the televised version. Mm -hmm. Like the Alice in Wonderland bits mm -hmm. are not in the televised version. And it kind of... <laughs> I did make a joke in the um, my notes about Zoe not knowing who Alice in Wonderland is. And I was like, she's from the 21st century. She never <laughs> saw the Pogo video <laughs> on YouTube. Very 
Exactly. That's a trippy video. That seems like exactly the sort of thing Johnny Depp versions of this story. She has to have known about this story by this point. Well, we don't know that Zoe has anything like a sex drive, to be honest. So maybe she doesn't have that thing for Johnny Depp that girls her age (laughs) should have if they were growing up in the 21st century. But that seemed like the weirdest little reference that she mm-hmm. doesn't know about that but she knows the minotaur it's a yeah. more ancient yeah. story there, there's there's certainly more chance of that being a part of her repertoire yeah though the thing that i think the thing that bothers me about it is that i was always taught that alice in wonderland is to some degree mm-hmm. a math problem and that seems like the sort of thing that if zoe had heard that she'd be like oh my god i don't usually read literature but this sounds fascinating i'm going to go in and delve in and find out what this math problem actually is now don't ask me what kind of math problem it is because i'm not a mathematician but i'm told by mathematicians that yes the whole thing is a complex algorithm yeah. and it's like i thought really? it was just about drugs <laughs> yeah <laughs> It probably should be, right? Because that's the best way to watch the uh, the Disney movie, and that sure is how the best way to watch the Pogo video, which I'm sure Zoe must have watched at some point. Maybe she's just too young. Well, have you ever seen the uh, very ridiculous middle school musical version of Alice in Wonderland? No. No. It is most certainly about drugs. Whenever I put it on stage, I, I tell the kids, okay, this is where it gets weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, Which is the beginning, hilarious. right? Yeah, pretty much the beginning, yeah. Well, that's that's kind of what the mind robber in general is doing, though, isn't it? It's definitely got that trippy quality that the late 60s, we associate with the late 60s. And and that stage work as well. Again, going back to the idea that they were on this soundstage the entire time. They couldn't leave that locale. They had to flourish in whatever they could think of. You know, we've got the toy soldiers. Uh, you know, we're at Christmas time here now. And we've got all of these images that are, you know, maybe stolen from other sets of other BBC shows at the time. <laughs> that, that, that's how I envisioned it. And yeah. uh, it, it works. It does. It does. And come to think of it, I'm trying to remember when this was actually recorded again, um, because it aired in September. So they would have been recording this over Christmas time. So yeah, it's me again. And I probably meant to say they recorded this over summertime. Sorry about the mix up. All those things would have been in storage from all the pantomime shows and Mm -hmm. such. And not in current use. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Which is probably why Peter Ling ads as much as he does because the added stuff here it's kind of a shock when you watch the televised version and you're like oh there isn't a sequence where they go for, through miss havisham's um kitchen <laughs> yeah the cake yeah but the cake they you don't there. see that and you don't end up on the um aren't don't they take a boat ride on the river sticks at one point to see the medusa uh yeah something like that. yeah and that's awesome and that's exactly what you would think would happen in the land of fiction but you know it can't happen in the land of bbc studios if you're pine grove studio a in the middle of summertime no yeah especially when one of your stars has chicken pox <laughs> all right yeah. what else hmm. momentum was lost Yes, it was. 
Well, uh, this is my time to remind you that we do have a line that says Jamie takes a knocker in his hand. Oh! Yeah, so <laughs> just to show that we're not getting too terribly serious about a remit here. <laughs> There's still lots of little things that are shot past the uh, sensor a bit. Okay. <laughs> well, how about best lines? Uh, because we really need to talk about Ling's prose. His prose is... He's probably one of the best writers to ever write for this range. Yeah, this this story compared to any of the other ones that that I've read, the the writing style and just the details that's there and the feeling that's involved are, are above and beyond most of the other writers that that we that I've read so far. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like the the episode before this, this is a very simple tale, and the writer does a, a good job embellishing enough that it's it's far more interesting than the televised version. Yeah, it really is. And unlike The Dominators, which reads also like a tale told by simpletons, yeah. this one this one has a wonderful sense of intelligence about it even though it's about comic booky fairy taley all sorts of things it is brilliantly adult yeah i think it's because it's based on literature i think writers i think us those of us who study literature we really enjoy putting together these ideas the idea of time travel as a concept and then adding to it all of these fairy tales we've had some great adventures in different fairy tales throughout doctor who this is one of those where we get to join together some of those tales yeah exactly so having the minotaur in there even though we didn't really get him on screen though we will eventually he'll show up mm-hmm. the real mm-hmm. one um the medusa the Medusa is really well done on screen, as a matter of fact. It's stop-motion animation. Ooh. Yeah, so it lo- really looks, she looks amazing. Yeah, I think I think the idea of, of mixing uh, literature throughout time um, really comes across well here. You know, we have, we have the Minotaur and Medusa, which are, you know, Greek mythology, uh, thousands of years old. We have Dickens. We have comic books from the 21st century supposedly and it all it just it all kind of works together really well um even though they're all pulling from different uh, inspirations and different cultures even um so yeah i think it, it works really well together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely in fact i would i would think um steve that for your middle schoolers if ever you were going to assign them a doctor who book to read this would be a good standalone to do I agree with you. Uh, I add to the the genre mixing here, the actual Doctor Who as literature. He is a character. Oh, yeah. These, these are characters in a story that w- we are reading the story and adding their story to the stories of all of these other characters. You know, I I think of, of course, the more modern who, where we find out that we're all stories in the end, but Dr. Who and Jamie and Zoe are characters in this tale here. You won't even remember me. Well, you'll remember me a little. I'll be a story in your head. That's okay. We're all stories in the end. Just make it a good one, eh? 
Because it was, you know. It was the best. And in fact, thank you for pointing that out because we need to talk about how the regulars are handled in this because that's another thing Ling does really well. He gives us some actual characterization around the Doctor and Jamie and Zoe, which is really well appreciated. Like when Jamie is, at one point he hallucinates his home in Scotland again, and he has these bittersweet longings toward it. And I can't remember the last time we've had Jamie actually think about home rather than just calling everybody Sazanax and Noir and all that (laughs) stuff. Yeah, and um, this this being what the the second story that Zoe's been in, right? Um, you know, as opposed to some of the other companions that have come along, t- by the time they get to their second story, they're just kind of thrown around as fodder, and she still has things to do. She's still very active in the story, and she's throwing around the carcass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she she is a very strong character, and and has a lot to do and a lot to say and she's very involved as opposed to just being kind of a set piece to to be pushed around by the you know the antagonist for the doctor and jamie to come save right exactly she does take a little bit of time to get the idea that these are just illusions that this is not something that she needs to be fearful of the doctor has to remind her two or three different times he's already figured it out this is all illusion don't be afraid of this this is not real but she is really concerned that these things can hurt her and it it takes her that extra beat and i don't know if that's uh, the protagonist needs to be the strong one, or if this is a 1968 male-female characterization. Actually, I think there's a third option. And I noticed that at the very beginning, in the first two or three chapters, Peter Ling keeps hitting us over the head with the fact that Zoe is a very logical, very rational, mathematical sort of person, mm-hmm. that she doesn't have a lot of an imagination. Hmm. So these things are... She has trouble seeing them as creatures of the imagination because she doesn't use her imagination all that often. So she very much looks at the world around her as a logical person would. If she can see it, it exists. It exists. Yeah. Um, And even even, uh, once Gulliver shows back up uh, later in the book after Jamie has tripped the alarm, she sees Gulliver walk through the the alarm and she's like well he walked through it it's fine it's like no (laughs) no he's not real he he's a figment of your imagination yeah i i don't think it's him portraying her as you know a foolish stupid girl because that would be victoria (laughs) (laughs) yes yes what else oh just the the idea of of the doctor having to reinforce for himself I, at the end, you know, I can't create myself as fiction because that will entrap me Oh yeah. in this as well. And, and like Steve said, like these are characters, but in a way that, that kind of breaks the fourth wall in a way and makes the doctor feel real to us as the reader. Yes, exactly. Because he's the one real thing in this fictional yeah. world, even though he's not at all right. any more real than the rest of them. And that's a really interesting philosophical concept, the idea that, uh, how does the line go? If it happened in the past, it's history. If it happens in the future, it's fiction. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. The, yeah, and the idea that you create fiction, but history is something that's already been recorded. Yeah. And I, I wish that the, both the book and the story had gone into that a little bit more because it's one of the more interesting philosophical concepts the Doctor Who's ever touched on. I agree with you. That was a very interesting 
turn of events where he is thinking this through as the doctor's apt to do and saying i am not fiction i am real but from our point of view he is fiction and and yes it works really well there Mm -hmm, exactly and one of the things i appreciate and this is nothing to do with this book is that these concepts are so strong that when they brought them back for the audio dramas we get the sixth doctor and Jamie visiting the land of fiction again, and they think they're with a younger version of Zoe. It turns out that younger version of Zoe is a projection and the adult Zoe has come back to the land of fiction to take it over. Ah. Yeah. And it's, in fact, when I was talking with, I'm going to name drop. When I was talking with Wendy Padbury at Chicago (laughs) Tardis, I was telling her how much I appreciated her performance in that because she's able to pitch her voice so that she still sounds like a teenage girl from the 1960s and also sounds like an adult woman in her 60s or 70s, whatever she happens to be right now. And it was just listening to her do that performance like, oh, my God, I wish all the actors could do that. (laughs) The acting skill of those voice actors in Big Finish are all spectacular i i love listening to those tales getting into that adventure and and hearing the tales not only as they're told in big finish but then talking to the actors about their adventure of making these recordings they have such fun making these stories i get the feeling that maybe these actors didn't have quite the same degree of fun in 1968 but well now that we're here in the 21st century and we know about all of the things that Zoe should know about. I, I think we're we're in a good place with Doctor Who. Oh yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I believe so. And even in 1987, when this book was written, I can't remember if the Mind Robber was a, was freely available at that point yet. But I know that it wasn't long before it was released on video. It's it's great that the BBC looked at it and said, you know what, we're not going to re- record over this one. This one's a good one. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, you can almost wish they'd thought that about the other ones. Yeah, exactly. Anything else? Um, Any lines that stand out to you? Anything else? Just looking through uh, the notes that you sent us, uh, some of the details uh, for the forest are some of the puzzles. um, Whenever it starts to snow, Yes. And the letters being the snow and having them melt away, but then they also, <sighs> they're able to collect them to get that. I thought that was a really Isn't nice that touch. Isn't that brilliant? I wish that had been on screen, but the, imagine how difficult that would be to realize even now in 2018, yeah. let alone 1968. Um, and then the, the whole scene with Jamie uh, using the doctor to help climb to the top of the trees and realizing that the trees are really letters seen from above Um, once they climbed up to the the citadel on top of the mountain i thought that there was going to be a part where they would look down and the forest would be be something something of importance or significance but even even so if it's just just sayings or whatever throughout history Mm -hmm. uh, that was still a nice touch and i liked that Mm um just kind of yeah we we've seen kind of uh, nursery rhymes involved in mm-hmm. here, so we're getting all kinds of literature and spoken word and and just wordplay. Yes, uh, involved and, and Ling having fun with it, doing things like uh, having the doctor come continuously saying to coin a phrase, to coin a phrase <laughs> all the way through. <laughs> it's just brilliant. And uh, at one point he says, to "Zoe, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Don't exaggerate." 
<laughs> it reminds me of, I don't know if you're familiar with this. There's a PBS show called Word World, where everything in this world is spelled out. So the word pig forms the character of the pig and the word frog forms the character of the frog. It's an interesting way to get children to see letters and to form in their little heads the idea of how words can form a story. It's beautiful to think that in 1968 they were looking at this fictional world made of words not made of paper it's not a book it's made of words yeah. and mm -hmm. the literature and the literacy built into that mm -hmm. yeah exactly makes me think is it ee e. cummings that that in poetry a lot of times will create their poetry mm -hmm. into pictograms or sometimes um yeah i know the, there are other poets that yeah do there's that. a whole there's a whole school of poetry in which they do that and yeah. which is pictographic but yeah, constructing literally with the words to make the thing, the image of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is kind of what's been done here. And it really is just an impressive book all around. I know that our iTunes, <laughs> I'm going to say it again. <laughs> I know our iTunes reviewers tend to think we're a little too negative, even though we just got a, another positive review. So I'm happy about that. But this one I can't say enough good about. Yeah, so Sorry. I agree with your iTunes reviewers. You guys are sometimes a little bit negative on your Doctor Who stories. I know that as fans, we love this stuff so much that we we get to nitpick a little bit. This is one of those stories that I'm not really into nitpicking. I think that what they were trying to accomplish in the original airing and in the book, I think they have have successfully accomplished here. Yeah, I oh, think yeah. so. And this is one of the few times that the beauty of the prose is also matched by the strength of the story. Mm -hmm. I, I think the reason why a lot of our view, our listeners think that we tend to be a little too negative is because either you've got a strong story that's let down by a really poor prose style, or you have a poor story that's only buoyed up by a good prose style, or you have oh, Galaxy <laughs> <laughs> or something like it where you have a bad story and you have a prose yeah. style that's just bizarre. And that's something that literary criticism does. It's not that we're trying to be, you know, awful about it or anything. We're just saying, does this hold up as a book? Does it hold up as a novelization? This one does. This one amazingly does. Yeah. And I don't I don't think that they were trying to be overtly negative. I um, in recent years, anytime I, I am critical of something, I do try to look for something about it that I do like, um, which I think is important in any kind of uh, art form, whether it be literature or music, film, anything like that. Like you need to have an opinion about something and be able to support that opinion for good or for bad. Yeah, um, it's just critical thinking. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of times people take all the negativity to heart too much. And it's like, well, that's that's just part of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. So and last, chapter 10. Chapter, chapter 10. Stop it. <laughs> and chapter 10 is titled, The Doctor Has the Last Word. What a great <laughs> What a great pun that is. Yes, yes, exactly. Especially since, and I was about to say, the book ends a lot more emphatically than the televised version does. Because if the televised version had ended where it did, that could have been the end of the series. Mm -hmm. They could easily have ended the series there. 
Whereas with this, it's like, no, it's the end. And it's like, oh, that's lovely. Yes. That's a fairy tale come to its uh, conclusion. Mm-hmm. Which is just fantastic, really. I agree. I guess uh, as I was reading it, having having gone through a couple of great intelligence stories, <laughs> I I had a feeling that this may have been kind of another recurrence of that. Right. Um, but like you said earlier, this this is probably just another elder being from the universe that has yeah. kind of uh, been around for a very long time. And well, I'm going to turn us all into sausages. Yes. Sausages. <laughs> <laughs> All exactly the same. Some of the wordplay in this is is brilliant. The children asking the the old questions, the old punny uh, riddles, and the doctor looking at them and just having the answer because, of course, he does. He's the doctor and he's got the literary background. Some of those work really well here, and the fact that he's not flummoxed by them, he's just spouting these old riddles yes some of them he doesn't even get around to one i still use with my my classes where was moses when the lights went out they can never get that one and it's really <laughs> simple in the dark <laughs> of course but yeah that somehow never uh never gets you know <laughs> on the ark <laughs> on the ark sure no wrong wrong old I know. man <laughs> i know <laughs> right right part right. of the testament but wrong it's part like, of it's like say milk five times fast what a cow's drink <laughs> the other one that i really enjoyed was when the master says come into my parlor and the doctor of course replies said the spider to the fly mm. this is definitely a literary situation he's he's laying out what is happening here in this this code that we have of literature Mm-hmm, exactly. And I find that Ling's prose style even clarified a few things that I was always confused about. Um, Gulliver at one point says to Jamie, you should be put to death. And on screen, it always sounded like a threat. But mm-hmm. no, it's, it's the way the grammar was in Swift's time. What he's yes. saying is, if you are caught, you'd be put to death. Yes. So he's thinking, oh, I've got to hide you. Yeah, even the delivery of that line on screen is a little menacing. But here it's like, oh, oh, yes. that's what's <laughs> going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can learn something new every day, even at the age of 48. <laughs> that's right. Just amazing. I have to say, though, if the carcass was made in the early 20th century, he must have been designed by Rob Liffeld because, oh, that design sounds terrible. <laughs> Purple and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too much. That's a little bit. Just a bit. Okay. I do. Oh, I want to ask both of you one big question. The very end of the book kind of implies that being too involved in fiction is a bad thing, which is interesting for Ling as a writer to take as a position. What do you all think is the, uh, is the message of this story? If there is one, if I'm to borrow, I, I would say that I I've, constantly been thinking of Simon Pegg's statement last year that we comic book readers and superhero fans are being we're stuck in some sort of in infant state and we haven't grown up somehow that we we urge toward our adulthood 
while still sticking to these ideas of infancy and these childish stories. Mm -hmm. If, if I was going to guess, that's maybe where, where he's saying, get out of this science fiction stuff, go read Tolstoy. Yeah. I think that may indeed be it because Mm -hmm. Ling would have, and that's why he's throwing in references to Dickens and Walter de la Mer and all of these other larger literary figures and saying, it's not all science fiction kiddies. Yeah, yeah, I, I, th- I think that science fiction, fantasy, horror, uh, mystery—you know—they are there to teach us lessons and to help us explore the unknown, our fears, um, and to allow us to to see ourselves in those heroes and people like that. But ultimately, we do have to live in the real world, mm-hmm. and much like the doctor realizes, his actions are not written in stone. His actions are not things that are being told to him by somebody else he is in control of his destiny and you have to you have to own yourself you have to own your life um and and create your own story Mm -hmm. don't let it be written for you true okay interesting beautiful yes i think so too bravo (laughs) so shall we go to goodreads let's do it yes we do as we always do Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we come to an upcoming book, simply read the book, write a post in our discussion group on Goodreads before the posted deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing our book ourselves. You may just get your review read out here on the air. The average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.71, which is higher than most. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Chad Mitchell gives it four stars and says, as for the mine robber, I found it fascinating because the storyline was interesting, fast-paced, and because I'd never seen that particular old season of Doctor Who. Overall, it was great for what it was. If you're expecting more for the book to be just as good as the modern TV series, then you'll be vastly disappointed. I think it is as good as the modern TV It's fantastic. Yeah. It's very Doctor Who and worth the read if you like the series, especially if you're interested in seeing the progression of the Doctor over the years. Moffy, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Moffy gives it five stars and says, classic 1960s mind-messing weirdness with a host of literary characters and references. This is what you get if you cross Doctor Who with the prisoner, yeah, and some of the weirder Avengers. If you like the Celestial Toymaker, you'll like this. Actually, we like this better. Yes. <laughs> Chris Kiley gives it four stars and says, definitely the most surreal Doctor Who story I've come across recommended. And finally, our old friend Derelict Space Sheep <laughs> gives it three stars in this what he calls his 42-word book review. Peter Ling's only Doctor Who novelization is more competently written than many in the target range. As a Wonderland homage, however, and as a pioneering work of metatextualism, the story trots out and bottoms out on visual flourishes better suited to television. (laughs) All right, so Steve, you are our guest, so we're going to go with you first. Out of five stars, what would you give this? I think this is a solid 3.7, the average that you found on your Goodreads list. I think this is a very good story. I think it's well written. And a love of literature and literacy is so well deserved here. The author really wants us to share this world that we live in and this world that we can live in through the world of 
stories, and literature. I think this is a good book. Okay, terrific. Uh, Dalton? Um, I I love this. I love this book so much. Um, it's, it's probably my favorite story we've read so far. Out of five stars, I, I'm like four to 4.5, so we'll split it down the middle, say 4.25. Um, I love the writing style. I love all of the, the literary references, uh, the character development, the interplay of all the characters in the story. Um, there's just a lot going on here that really checked off Lots of boxes for me. There's adventure. There's a mystery. There's there's just so much in here um, to draw from. And and mm. if anything it is like we said, it is very inspiring and makes you want to to read more and to explore more and to just be involved mm. in in fiction in in creative processes. Period. Agreed. Agreed. And for me, I would say um, ugh, it's hard to say. I I I actually think I'd give it a four point five mainly because I haven't looked forward to a book like this since one of David Whitaker's books. And having that level of prose style coupled with a really good story, I did not want to speed through this book at all. I wanted to savor it. I wanted to take my time with it. And luckily, I had the chance to. Um, because there are very few Doctor Who books that are written as well as this. So this really is a treat and a treasure and something of a Christmas present. Yes. So it's kind of nice that it landed where it did. So 4.5 stars. All right. Thank you, guys. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we will be ringing in the new year by discussing Ian Martyr again and his novel, The Invasion. Ooh. That's going to be mid-January, though, so don't expect us back before then. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word, like a crazy person with no spaces. You can also visit our still pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash wtwtargetbc. Feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes. Give us a thumbs up or comment on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperor forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter. We're at dwtargetbc. Subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And if all else fails, you email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. We would like to thank Steve Fodor from Too Much Scrolling for mm-hmm. joining us for the special episode. Yes, yes, Th- yes. Thank you for letting me be a part of your uh, special Christmas episode and this wonderful book. Uh, this, is, this has been a, a great amount of fun. We do a lot of reading on Too Much Scrolling. We have a book of the week. So if you're interested in getting more literature in your life and more science fiction and more Doctor Who, we talk all about all of those subjects on Too Much Scrolling. You can find us on TooMuchScrolling.com or on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn, just like you. And you can find <laughs> us on on all of the social media everywhere. We're, we're, we're just we're a fun bunch of guys. Come and join us. They certainly are. So, thank you very much for listening. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, have a trippy Kwanzaa, and may the spaghetti monster in the sky rain sauce upon you and yours. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Best of us for the rest of us. (laughs) And a bright solstice. Exactly. (laughs) Take care, everyone, and happy 2019. Bye-bye. Do
Hello? I seem to have completely lost you at this point. Well, that was fun. I'm just going to take over the show from this point on. I hope Craig is still recording. Uh, this has been the Doctor Who Target podcast. <laughs> What's the name? The Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. I wonder where you've gone. Did you run out of battery, perhaps? Or rum? Or both? I really hope this is recording so that you'll hear this later. So the mind robber has nothing to do with that uh, Peter Capaldi episode where in the, they're in the bank and their memories are wiped. So that's good. Sausages!